This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. This is going to be a little bit of an unusual Politicology episode because we're just jumping on here uh, at the spur of the moment um, because shit's getting real in Ukraine. So I'm sitting here with Molly McHugh, who many of you know from the show. Uh, she's a writer and a researcher of Russian influence and in information warfare. So the situation that is unfolding right now is squarely in her wheelhouse. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, Washington Post, Lawfare, Every place you read smart things. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and, most importantly, the lead author of an excellent newsletter you should absolutely subscribe to called greatpower.us. Molly, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, really, there's one question that I think is on everybody's minds right now. Well, many people, especially who are just tuning in now or who have sort of just recently been paying attention to the escalating tensions and now Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how does this end? Well, um, I think right now what we are seeing is that it ends with, in some form or another, the removal of the government of Ukraine by uh, a kinetic war fought by the Russians, that will probably kill a whole lot of people on both sides in the time that it takes to achieve that goal. Uh, if nobody shows up to do anything or to stop anything or to provide any additional support to Ukraine, even to make the killing less bad, not even to be there and actually fight, uh, I think we're all going to be pretty ashamed of what we see unfold. Uh, except the Ukrainians who are so brave and so diligent and so clear-eyed about what they are going into. And even today, you know, there's this group of extremely smart researchers who are all really young and speak like 25 languages and are working on the sort of hybrid stuff targeting Ukraine um, uh, as part of this project to kind of explain how the hybrid measures are working in the country to everybody, including briefing like all these high-level people that come into the country and, and don't understand. Um, and they're all slowly making their way to the border because they're all on the lists, um, which are real. And uh, if you get to a Russian checkpoint, they have the lists, which is not the checkpoint you want to get to. Um, and, uh, you know, they're making their way out and I was checking in on them because, you know, you, you know, these people and it's just sort of like, Hey, are you okay? And every single one was just like, so grateful that I bothered to see if they were okay. And they were like, what do you think? And I sort of gave them my very candid, but obviously more optimistic than I would 
say to someone in my kitchen view uh, about what was happening. And they all said the same thing, which was like, we just hope we can buy enough time that everybody sees and does something. And not even for them, for us. Like they just know that this war they've been fighting, which has always been about us, and they know that. I mean, yes, it's also about Ukraine and they're fighting for themselves and their history and identity and their the future that they imagine for themselves. But uh, they have always understood that they're at the front lines as a shield to the values that we think we cherish. Um, and they just hope that they can stand there and fight long enough that we wake up and fight for ourselves before it's too late. And it sounds like poetical and romantic. It's obviously quite terrible in its reality. But the fact that this generation sees that and is calm and is proceeding as they have planned with the, with the evacuation and war plans they've made with their families in advance. Um, but it was, I've, I've spent most of the last week like really angry, which is good because it keeps you from being sad or despondent. Uh, but I had like a five minute breakdown about, about that today because they were all just so fucking nice to me that I bothered to see how they were. And it's like, I'm on my couch with my cats writing things and you guys are walking with everything you can take with you and your children to a border that may not let you across because nobody showed up to fight when the Russians decided to smash you. And it's just like, I'm fine. How are you? So that's what I see is if we don't, if we don't understand this fast enough, it will be another one of these. Let's just try to normalize how bad the thing that just happened was. Let's try to normalize how bad the war in 2008 in Georgia was. Let's try to normalize how bad everything Russia did in Syria from 2011 onward was. Let's try to normalize what Russia did in Ukraine and in Eastern Ukraine or in Crimea, and then in eastern Ukraine starting in 2014. Uh, let's try to normalize the assassinations and the uh, poisonings and the shooting down of civilian passenger jets and the assassination attempt of a NATO prime minister and all the other things that we somehow find a way to just, well, if only Russia will work with us on China and climate change, like actually it'll be a new, bright, shiny fucking country and everything will be wonderful. Like, no, this is the Russia we have. So I just don't, like the end is if Putin wins in Ukraine, he keeps advancing. And Moldova yeah. will take five seconds. It has no army of its own. It'll just be like the, the guys who are already there will step across the boundary line and be like, hey, we are now Moldova. And they'll be like, oh, we're yay. Uh, but I mean, if you listen to Putin this week, he very clearly in the you know sort of divine architecture he's building in his mind of what this is about, um, I think we should be clear on this. He listed uh, Finland and Sweden in the same historical diatribe about Ukraine as things that once belonged to the Russian empire that belong to it still. And then in his description, in his declaration of war about, um, uh, you know, he sort of had this part where he was talking toward the end about if the, you know, if the West really wants to break its agreements or says we are breaking agreements, let's talk about those agreements at the end of World War II, because uh, the, the, I forget what the right word was, but like that, you know, like the outcome of the outcomes of World War II, um, we need to talk about those. And what he means very specifically is the Baltic states and Poland, right? So 
what he's saying is if you want to up, if you want us to uphold any agreements you have to uphold your world war ii agreements which means all the stuff that the soviet union got because uh hitler fell and we had to give them things so they would stop fighting stuff uh and all the people that we left trapped in the soviet union for stalin to continue torturing and maiming and killing uh that we have to give those back that's like how he's thinking so all of those countries know now that they're very clearly on a much more immediate list. It's not a someday list. It's not a next list. It's like, it, if nothing happens right now to stop this, Putin advances That's into territory next. that yeah. is ours. Absolutely. And, uh, and if, but they think that the other piece of this that's so critical is Ukraine is the fulcrum, right? And like, if we actually decide Putin will not win here. And obviously, like, we're not going to defeat him next week. We took too long. We don't have the stuff, whatever. But, like, if we decide Putin cannot win here, then that's the beginning of the end of Putin. And I just don't know why we aren't willing we haven't made to get out of yet. this trap that we're in with our thinking and just be creative. Okay. It seems that way to me too. And then I go on Twitter and I see a whole bunch of people saying, oh, well, like we need, we need many levels of different escalating, you know, sanctions options. And this one, if this one doesn't work, then maybe this one will. And let's hold Swift until later. And it just begins to like boggle the mind as to why they think it's any of this is going to make a difference to a madman who sort of has already made all of these calculations before he pulled the trigger in the first place. And anyway, you mentioned values. And I literally, before we hopped on, I tweeted something that I'm, that I'm sad. uh, I'm sad that, you know, today is going to be the first time a lot of young Americans see the start of a war. And, but what's even worse is that our information hellscape is going to fail them as they look and fail to find clarity and context uh, and and try to understand what this is ultimately about, which is our values, our once shared values that we no longer seem to be able to articulate. And I think we should just take a minute and and talk about those. What are the values that we once shared, that we once knew, that Ukraine is now fighting for, that we seem to not think are important enough to defend? Or defend somewhere else, anyway. Uh, yeah. or, or I guess in, in a certain list, but not another list. And I think that's what's so dispiriting about what we've seen from this administration. For me, in the past, I don't even know what month it is anymore, but nine months, whatever, from Afghanistan until now, is two places where we had been fighting for, or at least supporting the pursuit of a more liberal, more Democrat, like small L liberal, not, not, you know, political liberal, uh, but a more liberal, more open, more transparent, more inclusive, more representative society. And in both cases, we've just decided that that's not the place that we can do the fight when the second half of the speech that Biden's going to give is about how important this fight is and everything is about the fight. So I just want to be clear with everyone that the battlefield for the future of democracy is in Ukraine. And if you're one of our poor teenagers who lives in social media, you know, you might you might have been led to believe these past weeks that it's in Canada where the crazy like anti Justin Trudeau trucker movement thing that's being supported by the U.S. right wing is uh, it's just madness. This idea that like we should actually go to war with Canada over 
I don't even know, COVID, like, who cares? Uh, or that the real war has always been on the southern or northern U.S. border because immigrants or something and not places where democracy actually matters. I just I feel bad for people who don't who are not being constantly indoctrinated with this stuff the way that I had the for- good fortune to be by working in new democracies who had had to bleed to get what they have. And so I think um, the right to live in a country where as a normal place, right? Where you don't need to care about politics if you don't want to care about politics. You can send your kids to school and go buy groceries and have a job and save money and buy a house and go about your life, get healthcare or, or you know, plant a garden or whatever it is you want to do, write a book um, without fear of imprisonment, torture, killing, expulsion, harassment. Um, these very basic things that... Uh, I think democracy sort of was born to protect the idea of our liberties. Um, But that's in the most immediate sense, that's what these places seem to understand better than we sometimes do. So the right for representative government, the idea that you, the people choose people who you believe will represent what you care about in a governing structure in a way that is accountable to you. Uh, The idea that, uh, you know, there's economic freedom, a system in which there is opportunity and competition and um, the ability to get an education if you want one. Uh, you know, all of these things that we kind of take for granted in terms of choice about future uh, social uh, movement, you know, sort of between class or, or, you know, social mobility. Sorry, my brain is so tired. I can't even like remember words anymore. Um, all of those basic things. But, and it's all these things the idea of the fundamental in the American context, at least idea of the equality between people, um, that everybody is fundamentally equal, that we all deserve the same rights, that we all deserve the same defense from our government for those rights. And all these things that we have fought as a country for so long now to get right and better and sharper. Um, and I think get closer to, and then back away from, and then get closer to again in our, in our up and down history all of those things that we think of as being so integral to our identity and our history and why we are unique in the world, all of the values uh, and principles on which our country is based and which our history is based and without which we are essentially a failed experiment uh, and an anomaly, which is exactly what Putin believes, that democracy is the strange anomaly in the history of tyrants and kings um, and will go away someday. Um you know, all of those things, this idea that there should not be a permanent ruling class you know, yeah. that has ultimate yeah. say over everyone else's lives. It comes down to the basic bits of that. But I think, especially if you're one of these newer democracies that uh, freed themselves during the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, I think it's worth looking, for example, at why there's this urge to fight. In the Ukrainian context, for example, in the last week, uh, you've heard Putin talk about a lot about World War II as part of his, you know, historical justifications of things. You've heard Putin anchoring the arc of Russian history a thousand years ago in Crimea and the conversion of one of the Viking princes that was ruling uh, then Kiev Rus, you know, to orthodoxy, which kind of became uh, the eventual Russian lineage. Um, but the idea that that this is where their history starts and that's the important launch point. But you've heard him talk about all these things, including a lot of very strange praise for Stalin. Hating on Lenin, mm. really praising Stalin. 
And if you're a Ukrainian, what does that mean? Okay, Joseph Stalin is the guy who enlisted a policy of, of forced famine against Ukraine, uh, in which this is before World War II started in the, in the late 30s. Um, in order to, because uh, the Ukrainians were resisting uh, collectivization and, uh, you know, the, the sort of policy of, of forcing people to work on farms. Uh, they were resisting collectivization and had this national identity and sense of self and sense of language that was annoying to the Soviet overlords. Um, and unlike many of the other ethnic minorities uh, or smaller republic units where you could kind of just torture harass, deport lots of people. If they were and send them to Siberia and they could mine things and build things, there were just too many Ukrainians. It's a really big place with lots of people in it. So they decided to just starve them to death. So even though Ukraine is uh, the black soil of the Soviet Union, it, is, uh, a hu- it was a huge portion of its uh, arable land. It was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. The Ukrainians continued to grow food that was taken from them while they starved. Uh, and there's a there's many great, really wrenching books about this written, but Tim Snyder's, which is called Bloodlands, is one of the best. Mm. Um, and he sort of describes the choices that people had to make to survive or not. And it's one of the most horrific things you'll ever read. Um, but literally, when your entire country is starving to death, there's nothing left to eat. What do you do? And for every Ukrainian now uh, in Ukraine, this was your grandparents' life. And you know these stories and probably at least one of them died, right? Like during this time period, a grandparent or a great grandparent or someone in the family. And so you understand that when there's a dude sitting in Moscow saying Stalin was really great and had great ideas and he had great ideas about Ukraine and Ukraine should never have been independent, this Lenin thing. Like, I don't know what Lenin was thinking when he said Ukraine was a thing, but it was never a thing. And we should do what Stalin did. It's like, what you're hearing is this guy who killed like 20% of the population of my country is making decisions about where we should go now. Awesome. And um, so I think for them, this is very eerie. And I know we don't know the history and we don't hear it the same way, but it's, it's not even just the choice of like, we want to be able to vote to go to Europe, which I think we sometimes sort of diminish this as. It is the understanding that the thing coming back for you is the boogeyman, right? It's, it's, a guy who praises organized terror as a, a tool of governance. Um, and I know that, in, you know, in the U.S., these ideas of liberty and freedom have become such cartoonish, you know, bumper stickers in our lives. Um, but for them, that's what this is, is the freedom to not be in a system of organized terror where you will be killed because you were inconvenient to somebody's economic plan. Um, and I think sometimes it's important to just put a pin in it mm. <laughs> and sort of, yeah. sort of look at that yeah. um, and yeah. understand that's why they're fighting. Um, and for us, I know it feels far away and not immediate. And World War II for us is like, yeah, we all know what our grandparents were doing then. But uh, it was a long time ago. But for them, this was about survival or not in a really immediate way. Well. Even for us, I mean, I want to I want to seize on that for a minute because even for us here now, 
for even for a lot of Americans who don't pay attention to foreign policy, right? Now the crisis in Ukraine, the, the invasion of Ukraine is inescapable. It's on its front page above the fold, takes up the entire newspaper everywhere you look, right? So now even if you weren't attuned to, for the last several weeks, months of the world being on a knife's edge with Russia's Putin's posturing, if now you're now you are paying attention. And what I worry about, and I'd love for you to speak to this a bit is that we are already so fractured. Our information ecosystem is already so polluted that we can't even find what truth is. We can't even find clarity. You can't even tune in. And uh, if you're a person who's sincerely seeking to understand what exactly is going on, what does it mean, not just for Ukraine, but what does it mean here? What is it, what is, what, even if America isn't going to put boots on the ground in Ukraine, what does it mean for America? What does it, what is our role in this fight? What is my role as an American voter in this fight? How do I need to understand the decisions that the administration is making? And what should I be telling my congressperson about how they should be sort of talking about this? There's no clarity. And it's, and this this, I described it as a hellscape earlier, seems to be precisely what Vladimir Putin has been trying to cultivate in America for uh, how many years now? Uh, certainly since the 2016 election, this kind of of chaotic information environment that actually um, cripples a nation's ability to come together and uh, and and stand up to um, him. And, and so anyway, I just, I, can you speak to the, the information environment? Because I see this as a massive problem. Yeah, there's levels upon levels upon levels of problem here. I think one is just as, as you say, it's the fracture, right? And the fact that even in moments of crisis, it is now very hard to find the crisis in your news environment, unless you have a highly curated social media feed, which all of us Twitter geeks do, because we like the thing that we're going to look at is going to show up right in front of us when uh, when we want to see it. But um, when there is like, oh, there's this war, what's happening? You know, what do you even watch? What do you tune into? That is always, even for those of us who care and do this for a living, yeah. it's always a hard decision. Like, do you doom scroll Twitter? Do you search for Ausent? Do I mean, you... if you tune into Tucker Carlson, he's going to tell you Vladimir Putin's a hero. Right. So, so that's kind of step. So first is the fracture and like just finding information when there's no like sort of ultimate or penultimate sources of just fact and basic, just basic reporting, not even like highly editorialized panels of things, but just basic reporting is hard to find. That's number one. Um, number two, and then like all the specialized outlets and things. like there's no like, two papers you need to read to find everything anymore. It's like 10,000 different things, which actually gets really annoying, especially in the context of Substack, which yeah. I say as a person with a Substack newsletter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is which now- Which everyone should go subscribe to. <laughs> totally. We get to live in our silos. I'll have a new piece on Ukraine up later today, which will be, um, I hope, less angry than it is right now. Uh, but, so there's that problem. The second one is is what you have already moved into, uh, which is correct, because I'm babbling, because I'm tired. But um, if you look at, the supporters of Putin this week. And I think is CPAC happening right now. I'm sure there's like endless stages of goons just like kneeling before the great almighty white God of Christian whiteness or whatever the fuck they think Putin is. But um, the praise, I mean, yesterday, right before the war started, you had Eric Prince, Prince of Darkness, 
on War Room with Steve Bannon, you know, Emperor Advisor of Darkness, uh, going on and on about how we should be on Putin's side because of, I mean, the heart of all of this is, of course, the traditional values, quote unquote, bullshit, where it's like Vladimir Putin hates wokeness and is an anti-woke crusader and hates gay rights and LGBTQ issues. And we hate those things. So we should be on his side because he would burn all the shit down for us and our craziness, right? And just, it was, it pisses me off so much to see that stuff because that whole avenue of anti-gay hate, like the traditional values people in there as well, but especially the anti-gay hate people uh, are the ones who um, are, have been so easily recruited against their own interests to be aligned with Russia for money, for you know amplification, for alliance, for whatever because they're like, yeah, here's somebody who finally gets it. Like, we hate the gays so much together that, like, we can all be allies. Like, it literally made my brain melt that they're sitting there, these two gazillionaires who have profited from the pain of the country, who are now like, oh, Putin seems great, let's be on his side, right before this war starts. You kind of just want to pick them up and throw them into a, like, old school on the back of a wagon, you know, cell and roll them around the town square and let people throw vegetables at them for a while. Uh, as as a start to their trial, of course. Yeah. Um, so there was that. There's Tucker Carlson's relentless praise of Putin. In like, yeah. if he's not getting paid by the word, like the Soviets used to pay people, I have no fucking idea what the hell that's about. I mean, it's it's so hard to imagine what you have done to your brain to say stuff to, like this. To say stuff like and it, and it also and I know we did we we just recorded today's Thursday. We just recorded the roundup this morning yeah. and we talked about this. We played that Great. clip and that's going to come out on Friday. I'm going to try and drop this conversation tonight on Thursday so just I to try and I turn won't around get quickly. Into it very but much. no 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 but but but, but everybody but, should it, listen to the roundup to hear about this <laughs> terrible weird thing because yeah. it's just it's I mean it's for me like there started to be these weird moments in the information space in the U.S. when there were dedicated Russian intelligence efforts to recruit fellow travelers. uh, And and in the lightest sense of that word, you know, look for ideological kindred, support them with information and stuff, repeat their headlines and, and, and narrative to amplify them, find ways to build sort of common space and alliance. You know, just even, even removing the idea of exchange of money or actual relationships, right? Just, the, the passive way in which this was happening. And like 2015 was the first time I remember seeing headlines on Fox News in foreign policy, like domestic stuff has always been a shit show, but um, in foreign policy that were less of the Reaganist, freedom-loving, hawkish perspective and more of this like, wait, was that like a weird isolationist pro-Russian thing? Like, what was that? And just like, sometimes it was just the headline of these stories and then the story itself was just blah, blah reporting. But um, I remember one was like, the first one I actually noticed, I remember it was some story that the headline was like, you know, this was when the U.S. had, there's these new, um, then uh, there were these new NATO forward deployed battalions being set up. So approximately a thousand guys in each of the three Baltic states and in Poland um, that NATO had decided to organize and send forward uh, from all of the other troops that are already standing around in Europe. Uh, because of the post-Crimea environment in 2014, where there was a lot of concern about the what next, right? Like, what is Putin going to do next? So there was a decision made to forward deploy these troops. Um, the four, four different countries took the ownership of each of these groups. The U.S. took ownership of the Poland one and had, like, 
some of our dudes plus other NATO dudes. It's a sort, all of these things are sort of a, a hodgepodge of, of uh, participation, which is great. Um, but when the U.S. one was going out, there was this Fox News headline that was U.S. troops deploy to doorstep of Russia. And you're like, you know, Poland's like way, way over here. I mean, like, and yes, there is Kaliningrad, which is this strange Russian port that was we all call it Konigsberg as a joke since it was the that was the German name and I think we should go back to it but and then just give it to Poland or something but um Kaliningrad is this strange Russian port that's like on the Baltic Sea between Lithuania and Poland and it's like a weird strange isolated enclave that's like heavily armored and has nuclear weapons in it and um uh it's it's a headache in every possible respect of that thing so, I mean, it is, kind, but like, it's not Russia, right? Like Russia's like the thing over there in the East that we think about. And um, so this headline was like, so provocative, you know, U.S. deploys to doorstep of Russia. Like the whole point was, it wasn't the doorstep of Russia, that it was like way back yeah. over here. Yeah. And it was about NATO and all of us just sort of hanging around and not, and it was just, I remember looking at it. It is what it is because like, it's not on the doorstep of Russia. Right? Yeah. I remember looking at it and being like, what's that about? And just sort of, I was doing other things then, so I didn't really care. But then after that, you kind of notice the drumbeat of these headlines. And I think, but I think this, the, the recruitment in this space, particularly on foreign policy, has been terrifying. And I think it's not, for me, it's always important to put the asterisk. It's not just the right, it is the isolationist left uh, in America as well. I think the, Greatest example of that is like Tulsi Gabbard keeps going on Tucker Carlson show yeah. and is at CPAC this Tulsi. week. You know what? Like she is. Freaking, yeah. Oh yeah. She's what? at CPAC. She's a featured stage oh speaker. Oh god. At CPAC. I know it's like there's a space time hole should this, open up and just suck them all like, in or something. We're in a wormhole or something. Mm-hmm. It's really okay. But I mean, this is the and like this whole the whole foreign policy space has gotten really muddled in the. A, a sort of return of the presidency to the Democrats where, you know, there's fracture in the Democrats post-Trump uh, away from the kind of everything is about hating Russia just because of Trump uh, thing, which was was nice for me for a while to have more Democrats on side, I'll be honest. Um, but back into the sort of normal posture of yeah. one side is more cautious about engagement, not in any way negative about democracy or anything. Like it's, it's good, but more cautious about global engagement. And the other is like overtly isolationist. There's a few hawks, but it's not really the, the democratic thing most of the time. Um, and then in the Republican side, you now have like two, maybe two hawks. Like people I would yeah. count as like old traditional Reagan. Like actual, yeah. And then the rest are like, meh, I got nothing to say. I got to go over here and talk about something. And then and, there's like the hardcore isolationist, right? And yeah. the way that those things have merged into one collaborative space uh, to hate on Biden is um, troubling in every possible yeah. respect of that word. By the way, we should maybe we should take a minute to clarify. Well, I, I just want to talk about this word hawkish for a minute because you know we I think maybe for a lot of people the 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 idea of a hawkish foreign policy or a hawkish stance yeah. toward you know Fair. like like uh, like that just that that word sort of connotes warmongering and a sort of military industrial complex that a lot of people do not like and do not want to see sustained. And I want to, I want to shatter that a little bit because that's not what we're talking about here. Can you, for someone who hears hawkish and here and, and, and then immediately jumps to sort of Halliburton military industrial (laughs) complex, like run it, you know what I mean? Like, let's tease that apart a little bit. Yeah, I think, um, 
I'm trying to, like one of the best examples, and people hate Hunnam him less because he's dead, uh, is John McCain, where um, John McCain had a lot of positions that were deviant from the normal Republican position on things like use of force overseas and torture and all these other because of who he was and his background. Because he was tortured. Because he was yeah. tortured, for example. Yeah. Um, but was uh, extremely aggressive. Like, so he was, I think he actually did have a forward leaning conception of how to use American military posture overseas, um, not always force, but posture overseas, um, from who he was and his understanding of military and why this is important and what the American force presence in the world is for, but was even more aggressive about his, his belief that other avenues of American power, uh, economic cooperation, diplomatic presence, how USAID works, how our democracy promotion worked, uh, our democracy promotion work worked, um, all of these other things that we don't really even like bother talking about anymore because nobody wants them. Um, you know, he was very uh, focused on how to use these things effectively, particularly in that period leading up to the end of the Soviet Union and coming out of it, where there were all these newly independent countries, as they were called then, the newly independent states, um, who didn't have a history of, you know, governance, of leadership. How do you build political parties? How do you set up a parliament? Like all of this stuff where there was tremendous need. That was, um, I think now democracy promotion has become this like tainted, awful, terrible term only associated with Iraq and sometimes Afghanistan. Um, And Nobody understands like what most of it was, was extremely boring stuff, like teaching people how to organize a political party, teaching people how to organize a vote. Like, how do you actually here's hold how, an election? Here's how you run an election. Right. Exactly. If you've never like, had one these are, before. These are skills that you don't know how to do. How do, do you, you register you, voters in a country with right. no addresses? You know, all of right. these types right. of things yeah. that I've had to do yeah. in other places too. Like. Uh, If you're going to have a country that derives its power from the consent of the governed in some way, then how do you get the consent of the governed? What is the system logistically? How do you do that? How do you find out what their consent is? What what they, yeah. When you're starting with nothing and have no tradition of it in the near, in the immediate past, you know, some people, some of the countries had an older tradition of independence, uh, either two or sort of four generations earlier to draw from, but, uh, but really, they really had nothing had to start from that. So he really supported this, like, these people are giving it a go. They're very clear that they wanted the Soviet Union to end because they saw the stuff that we have and the lives that we live, the lives that we live, and they want it. And not the blue jeans and the McDonald's and the pizza. Like, yeah. yeah, that was a part of it, right? But like everybody likes to have the choice of McDonald's sometimes, I suppose. But it was all the other things, just that there was plenty in these countries yeah. that you had the opportunity to pursue a life of comfort uh, and not in a, in a, in a grotesque way, but like you just didn't need to worry about stuff all the time. There weren't shortages and rationing and like all the crap that they had grown up with Uh, the banana line stretching four blocks around the city because the banana truck only came like twice a year. You know, they didn't want to live in that place anymore because it was indicative of the terrible governance uh, that they had lived under. They wanted this other thing. So there were a group of, and John McCain was always extremely vocal just because he was tireless and relentless and, you know, active all the time, never slept, like death marched people all around the world on these, on these trips to meet everyone. Um, he was the center of an extremely bipartisan group uh, of senators and congressmen, depending on which side he was on at the time, um, on these issues. Because he just believed in it. He believed all these places deserved to go that they had the energy and pluck and spunk to like pull it together. All they needed was a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of money at these weird junctures where they had nothing. Um, 
and and that so that was where the original what we now see as our democracy promotion infrastructure came from was this period where there was this idea that the Soviet Union, which had been this engine of oppression, had collapsed, and all of the Latin American countries that had been under their uh, you know uh, uh, influence had opportunity, and all of these European countries that were freed had opportunity, and all these African countries had new opportunity to pursue. Uh, more representative forms of government for all of these millions and millions of people uh, in the world. And it was so important, all of this stuff. And it really makes me sad that uh, back to the, do our, you know, do our younger friends even understand the stuff anymore? I don't think most people even know any of that stuff. Most Americans Uh, don't know about any of this work and how important their money, their hard earned tax dollars that went into this, which isn't a huge amount, by the way, just to be clear, this yeah. was always like yeah. a point oh 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 something effort of, of the overall percentage of tax revenue uh, and US budget, but um, that their money that went to helping all of these places in the world live better lives because they wanted to make them better for themselves. And isn't that what we believe here? It's like, and we by should the have way, the chance interest, to make our lives right? better for ourselves. Like, yeah. The easiest thing we can do to not have to fight wars anywhere is to make these places better and make them responsible for themselves. And John McCain understood this, I think, because of his more immediate experiences with war and peace and building countries than other people did. But again, had this huge leadership effect over an enormous group of people who were also leaders themselves on all of these issues. And I just feel like that's not there anymore (laughs) in the Congress. And we don't have people like that who kind of transcend the standard party ideological boxes um, on these issues in that way that was so important before, that you had bipartisan foreign policy in a real and serious way. I think we've all forgotten this now. When I first came to DC, the only real issues of, there was always divide on issues related to Israel uh, and always divide on like certain obscure things like Armenian genocide recognition. Uh, the Armenian, it's funny you mentioned the Armenian, the Armenian genocide, genocide never because goes away. when I was an intern on the Hill, I don't know, I'm teen Were years ago. Were you the ago, one who had to do all the letters? <laughs> I, I wrote the sense of the Senate resolution on the Armenian genocide. And like, uh, yes. I, I learned a lot about a thing. I had no idea was it. I only knew about the uh, Armenian genocide because I went to school in California yeah. where there are a lot of Armenians, uh, yeah. especially from in the LA area. And a bunch of people in my theater group were uh, L.A. entertainment connected uh, mm. Armenian children. And um, mm. I, I remember at one point we were like at the beach and they were like, well, next I can't do next weekend. Next weekend's the genocide thing. And I was like, what genocide thing? And I was so embarrassed that I had never you heard yeah, yeah. I had never of any heard of this, you know, World War One related yeah. stuff. But anyway. Yeah. So other than obscure issues, there used to be a lot of unity on yeah. what America is yeah. in the world and what we stand for. And the whole like, you know political divide stops at the border like boy do we not believe that anymore right but yeah it used to be that way and i just wish we could get back to it because it's so frustrating to me and i'm sure everyone on the domestic side who just wants to like go down their january 6 commission rabbit hole and not have to focus on this ukraine thing it's so frustrating to me that all of these things are going on that are connected to the same center how does representative government work now (sighs) yeah how does representative government work now? But but it should be clearer now. One of the things that everybody loved to talk about during COVID, as soon as the pandemic hit and then went thereafter, was just how interconnected we all are and how COVID has revealed that to everyone. The world can now see that, hey, guess what? We all live on a planet together at the same time. 
and what happens here affects what happens over there and what happens over there affects what happens over here. And we are all like far more deeply intertwined in our economic and our civic lives and our information lives than we ever realized before. And now that just doesn't seem to be, be persisting that understanding of, of what's happening in other countries of, of a, of a, of a, how did you put it? Ukraine is now the sort of the the ground zero the for the fight for democracy. It's the fulcrum, the fulcrum. Yeah. yeah, right. So, I mean, and I mean okay. that really in the sense of like, yeah. either we show up and we pull this fucking thing back over the edge, or it yeah. goes into the abyss, and it, there ain't right. no getting it back out of there. And like, right. I right. just don't know why we're not. I mean, that connection hasn't this. happened yet. That connection so hasn't sad. happened yet. So, okay, just to, to bring this back to what's yeah. happening now, I have three, there's just three thoughts uh, sort of rattling around. The first is you tweeted something I think is particularly important, um, and maybe you can expand on it for a minute, which is that Russia didn't take out communications for a reason, and that's because they wanted us to see what was happening. That's the first one. Then I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Vladimir Putin's sort of prolific buying off of uh, lobbyists, key figures in governments in Europe, in particular in Germany, I'm thinking, because we now know it took them a long time to get on board with, right? Like what was going on there and how is that approach sort of, maybe that's been going on for a very long time. We're now just starting to see the fruit of it as this, as this wave is breaking, right? And then third and finally, what is it you would like to see the Biden administration do next. And maybe we can talk about like what sanctions can and can't do. And, um, and maybe we can close it out there. Yeah, totally. These are all, these are all great topics. And I was going to step on you on the third one if you didn't bring it up anyway. So um, it's important. I don't want to, I really am not, I am not pessimistic about this. Like I'm angry and annoyed and frustrated, but what frustrates me is, that there is so much to be done. And this like, oh, well, it was always going to be this way. Like, we'll get it back to that. But so I think the first one quickly, the, you know, Russia didn't take out comms because they want us to see. Um, what do you mean by that? Didn't take out comms? So just in, if you, for example, in Kazakhstan recently, when there was this strange Russian military, quote unquote, peacekeeper intervention during a situation of domestic instability. And let's not dwell on it more than that right now. But Crap was happening. Russians showed up to back their chosen guy uh, and calm the country and blah, blah, blah. Because they also view Kazakhstan as one of these like little brother places. There's lots of Russian, uh, ethnic Russians in the northern part of the country. Um, But they decided it was time to go and intervene. And as soon as they did that, like the imagined um, sort of information defense architecture that Russia writes about and talks about a lot, uh, which is essentially you just turn everything off. Like you turn off the fucking internet because that gives you the ability to control the information environment. And again, that for Russia is a very expansive concept. It's like not just the crap going through social media and email, but like- No, it's the pipes. Turn off the, the pipes. It's the pipes too. And like all the stuff that regulates the pipes and like the physical hardware that is the pipes and uh, the systems that run the physical hardware that are the pipes. And so it's like this very the, the the Russian concept of information security is extremely expansive and and I was just teaching this in my class this week, which is why I know too much about it. But um, so all of that just 
goes down basically like immediately the internet stops it's very and and really you know it's not like people can't find an occasional phone or like there there are ways to communicate outward but the lazy ways in which we do it which is just like playing with this thing in our hands is gone um, and they didn't take it out in Ukraine. They didn't do no. that. No. And so, but in Kazakhstan, we had no idea really what happened. There was this very controlled then narrative that we all got, right? It was like a few videos and you're like, okay, whatever. We don't really know. Fine. And that was it. And so I think that's a good example of what can be done. And certainly they have thought about this in the Ukrainian context, um, especially given how many Russian companies are like embedded in Ukrainian stuff anyway. Uh, and and none of it, there were disruptions that I would th- that I would say were based on stuff that was actually targeting government things and too many people trying to do too many things on the internet at the same time while things were being bombed, you know. But um, but phones are working, people can communicate, emails are going out, we're all getting the TikTok videos, and um, uh, that is to continue this environment of information dominance. Uh, of the narrative being driven by what we see, which is what Russia is trying to show. And you see it echoed in their military strategy, uh, which is uh, a perception of dominance that is not necessarily as overwhelming and and force-driven as we see or believe. Um, But even in the pattern of attacks, which is like all across the country, even far in the West where nobody thought they were going to do things, uh, the Western part of Ukraine, like it's broad, it's wide, it's loud, it's flashy, but within that are targeted strategic locations and actual more important operations that are occurring. But they want this perception of total dominance. And that's why they're leaving the comms on is because for right now, they don't think it hurts them to do it. In fact, it helps them because we're all sitting here talking about how great Putin is and how you know it's impossible to fight him ever. So just surrender yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. Which I think we should all be aware of. Second. Yeah. Well, just we should be aware right. of that. Like, don't over promote oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. this stuff. Absolutely be aware. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, he wants you to see it because it helps bolster the image he's trying to project. Exactly. So, uh, all right. Second thing Germany in particular, but the practice of buying off key influentials. Yeah. So I think there's two, there's two things on this that I'll do briefly. One is what you're highlighting in the German context, which is the very blatant uh, targeting of high-level officials and former officials, sometimes currently serving officials, um, from European and American governments uh, to or, or companies or whatever, to, to bring them in as board members or leadership of Russian companies and interests and basically just pay them absurd salaries to be your stooge and wherever they are. And in the German context, um, you know, like two former chancellors are integrated into Russian energy companies uh, Schroeder has been this like relentless, you know, cheerleader of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, in a way that's like so grotesque and debasing, but like he doesn't care because he's getting 12 gazillion dollars a minute to do this work. Um, but I think, uh, so this, there's this like leadership recruitment thing that happens. It's board positions, it's other things, it's charity funds, you know, whatever it is. It's not straight up bribes or whatever, no. cash in an envelope. It's, it's the kind integrated of stuff that happens and above, in the US. seemingly above board. Right. It's the kind of stuff like all these former generals and congressmen who suddenly become a board member of a defense company or a, you know, a social media company or a tech company or whatever, uh, because they think they deserve that salary now that they've been a public servant all this time. Um, you know, all that stuff that would normally be you know, you may not like it and it's corporate and whatever, but understanding that all of those Russian interests are directly controlled by 
the Kremlin's agenda. Like, yes, they have things that they do, but the second the Kremlin pulls the string, it is part of the strategic uh, alignment of what the Kremlin is doing. And uh, so all these people sort of conscript themselves to be uh, Russian influence operations abroad. And in the German context, which has been completely undermining the entire energy sovereignty of Germany to move it away from literally energy independence to, oh, actually, you're totally dependent on Russian gas forever in the current way that you've built all your things, which is like, yeah, you know. So that's like yeah. the one level is, I think the German example is a great one, but in London, in France, in every country, including the United States, um, the deliberate targeting of influential high-level people as a deliberate cultivation of a system of influence that is a clear part of both Russian intelligence and diplomacy work, which they are very clear about in their own organizational and doctrinal thinking. So this the other layer that I think is important to understand because it's what you see more in DC where people are a little less willing to be direct shills of a grotesque autocratic government um, is that you're taking the money to buy the silence, right? And it was the best example I can give you is when I briefly worked at a bigger lobbying firm, uh, you know, I had done work on um, sort of very marginal work on uh, some of Hodorkovsky's stuff when he was first arrested, uh, a former Russian uh, businessman, a businessman, an oil magnate, uh, who was like the first oligarch Putin really sort of took down and threw in prison to make the point, you know, you all must be in line now or you die. Um, so I'd done a little bit of work on something related to that, like when I was like, in, you know, a kid. And uh, but it was a, it was listed as a conflict, thankfully, on some uh, sheet of crap that we got at this firm that I was working at. Because, of course, the Russians are always like all the oligarchs are always trying to hire fancy people to work for them for useless stuff. But it, but it was so interesting to me because you got this like I was, of course, telling the firm, like, we're not going to do this work because, you know, these are bad dirty dudes and this is all stolen money and they're like oh, okay well let's just do talk to them and we got these conflict documents and one was the government of georgia so obviously we can take it because i was working for the government of georgia then and the other was um uh this hodorkovsky thing but it was like a five page list of you cannot work for now or ever work for these things if you're going to take our dirty money and just the way it conflicted people out of being able to represent wow. Russian democratic interests, any of these, you know, reformers, dissidents, countries Russia doesn't like, companies that are direct competitors. It was fascinating. So um, I think understanding that when you're paying, and a lot of these, like the lawyers, air quotes, that don't need to register as foreign agents because they're doing legal work, which is for some reason a loophole in registration, um, even though they're influential anyway, and it's probably still making phone calls for them. Like, it, it, but the people who are doing legal work, you're still taking this huge paycheck of, of money for the most part to do nothing, right? It's like you're on retainer or it's like something dumb, like the oligarch wants their visa back or these stupid pursuits. I mean, it seems to me that like at your description, just to be a whitewashed version yes. of what Putin probably does with his closest inner circle, right? Yeah. It's just, a, it's, 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 a, it's a, pa it's a paper worked legitimized version of like straight up bribery and mm -hmm. like it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it just mirrors, I mean, it mirrors what happens anyway. Like if you're Facebook, you hire every serious lobbying firm in DC on like a $5,000 a month retainer or something pathetic for them because then they can't work against you. Right. Like, but everybody right. takes the yeah. little money because they want yeah. it. And then, and mm -hmm. then, and like, that's a normal strategy for influence and lobbying, yeah. but the Russians just 
mirror all the stuff and understand if you spread it around, nobody will come for you. Um, and that actually really does matter. It does. And, it does matter. Uh, it works. It's, it's, yeah, it's, and, and then it's the, it's the silent influence or the quiet influence. Right. It's not like the overt right. lobbying, but like your right. friend who works for the creepy Russian bank who just bought the villa in Tuscany for, with cash is going to be like, no, no, you don't need to like, don't do this thing. That's going to disrupt my big giant pile of cash to yeah. buy my Tuscan villa, you know? And it does like all the, all those webs of connectivity because the city is so small and incestuous actually really matter. And it's, you see it much more in places like London where there's more of the money and it's more overt and it's a bigger city and a financial capital, which DC is really not. And, um, uh, but that I think the, so there's sort of the elite level influence and then the like spread it around by silence layers that, uh, don't get enough attention when we were also focused on this Trump, like the sort of Trump era stuff where it was the assumption that people were knowingly taking the money to do the thing, to do a bad thing. Most of the time it's this other stuff, which is where they get the value. And then finally, what can we do? Right. Yeah. Before we close out with that third one, I just want to note, uh, I just got a note here um, from our producer that uh, Ukrainian president uh, says 137 are dead after the first day of fighting today. Today's I mean, I hate to say Thursday. it, but that means the Ukrainians are kicking ass. I mean, yeah, it, Ukraine is 40 million people and Russia is three times that size and uh, four times that size. I forget. Their, 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 their population is declining so much, it's hard to keep track. At least four times the size, I think. Um, um, and, and one other flag for our listeners, uh, I want to note that Molly, you and I, first began talking about what was going on on the border of Ukraine in an episode dated April 21st, 2021. It's called Border Crisis, if you want to go back and listen to that, because it's where you started to sort of set up what the ground game was going to look like. And all of that has unfolded um, exactly as you described and for the reasons you described. So um, uh, if you want additional context, I would suggest you go back and Start there. Listen to that episode, and um, yeah. So, with with all of those bona fides, <laughs> sort of as our foundation here, what can we do, and what do you hope that Biden uh, will do? And like the the the, the I just can't buy that sanctions are going to no. fix this. Look, I understand because so, I know these people. I know these people yeah. who, for forty years of a distinguished career as a diplomat, have argued this in a coherent and right way in terms of like you actually don't want to bring when you're doing these things that are sort of coercive or punitive you don't want to bring too much pain too soon because it like ruins the point of having the stuff right i get the old school logic of this but that was assuming that you were working in a system of rules and you are no longer doing that and russia has been saying that to us with force for the last 15 years so aside from the it's just not the country you think it is problem there's now this additional layer of weirdness where it is clear that um, I think at the beginning, Putin, you know, you absorb, you wrap yourself in the smoke and mirrors of the divine destiny of Russia and like this other crap that he talks about, the arc of history, you know, because it gave a justification to the stuff that he wanted to do. So I think there was a point when this was kind of, there were elements that he believed, but it was kind of like you absorb the whole and start talking about it because it was convenient for your, it gave ideological purpose to what was otherwise really just a, a, a gross power play. Um, uh, and I think, uh, I'm not so sure that he doesn't believe it a lot now, right? And you kind of see the, like he, 
he's very coherent in how he discusses things like faith and history. And, and as a, you know, former communist spy, it's weird in many respects. Um, but I think I'm not so sure. I, I, I do not, I don't like the madman things. I think it, it absolves all of us from having to find a strategy of dealing with what we're seeing. Right. But I do think it is a system of extreme control, obviously like Putin is the central piece of all of this. Um, but in a way that I think we have to put away this, like, oh, there's the layer, like, stop reading all the, like, stuff about, like, there's the layers of the guys. And if you if you squeeze that guy's mistress, then he'll be sad and he'll cry on Putin and Putin. Like, no, no, that is not what we're looking at anymore. That was the 10 years ago, maybe more like 15 years ago, logic of the Russian power structure and, and how you could make it move on your behalf. Um, and it's not that anymore. Like, were any of the guys in the Russian Security Council meeting and the one lady, of course, the one lady who they let in, um, were any of those guys happy to be there? Oh, no. Like, ew, what a gross, like, pre-recorded show of devotion to the divine destiny of Russia or whatever. And the same today, there was the oligarch meeting where they all had to come in and pay homage to the king and uh, and be lectured by him about why the war was important, despite the fact that it would cause pain for their companies because of the sanctions and yada, yada. Um, none of them like any of this, but like they also understand everything they have comes from and can be taken away by that guy sitting right there in the chair. And not just because he's a madman king, because of the structure of power he has built that goes directly to and through him and depends on him, um, that is also supported by a much wider architecture of stuff because of the way the money has been pushed through the system, right? So it's like, it's really hard to undo it. <laughs> I think, and I think this is the problem that I have is so much of this is still like, maybe we can just outlast Putin. Like he's 69, he, and there's always like this whole week, you're, oh, well, he looks puffy. Like he's had Botox like a zillion times. Like I'm sure he does look puffy, but stop hoping Putin's Don't gonna care. drop dead tomorrow. Or that one of his oligarchs is going to get mad and like knife him in the neck or something. Um, and understand that the Russia that Putin has built is in the mind and in the pocket. Um, and undoing those structures of influence and power and control is a generational effort. And right now there's no one to do it. And if he dropped dead right now, the guy who comes behind him is the same in terms of the vision of what Russian power is in the world. And um, we need to have. A better way of dealing with this because what Putin is saying is I have foreign policy objectives and I will achieve them with military force with grotesque overwhelming use of force by planning an aggressive war against neighbors which is a violation of every international charter that Russia has signed on to ever and actually we found today uh my friend Eric Cross who's a big Estonian legal nerd um as well as a stand-up guy um uh, the Nuremberg Charter that has the sort of specific uh, references to crimes against peace, which is planning aggressive wars against neighbors um, or for, you know, political objectives, like planning, uh, using the, the threat of force or force in order to achieve these objectives um, uh, is, is written into the Russian legal code. Because at some point, I'm sure some very nice Western legal advisor, like, told them to cut and like, paste it in you there. You should get that to write there. that down. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, um, <laughs> It's, it was probably in the template that they got from some other place, but um, but it's in there. And so, you know, I just think um, understanding that it's not that we're waiting for Putin to do the bad thing. He's already done the bad thing. He's invaded yeah. 
two other countries. He's done the thing. Yes. And, and, and like run, run coups and destabilization efforts in countless more, including in Africa, including in Latin America. Like all of these things already happened. And then all of the other laws he's broken. And then just specifically this exact escalation cycle on Ukraine, planning a war of aggression against a neighboring country is a violation of all of these things. And um, uh, so we're already into the, what retribution, like what price does Russia pay for this? No one's even thinking about that. So I think there's this whole legal realm where we need to be more creative and then understand this box we've put ourselves in, which is the coercive fear-based box. It really is fear. You can argue it's not fear. I think it's, it's, it's still very cautious and fear-based, but that the idea that anything you do against this crazy guy who is actually threatening to nuke things. And I would just specify, I think he means Ukraine and not us. Uh, Cause in Russian nuclear doctrine, you can nuke your own territory and he views Ukraine as his territory um, to stop an invasion. So what he was saying was, you know, I, force you have never seen will be used if you intervene in Ukraine. I think that's what he means, but I think that is actually like fear mongering. Um, but uh all of this stuff he's already doing is ridiculous. And, and like, you don't make it go away by agreeing that this guy is willing to do stuff you're not willing to do and taking away his credit cards. Like, that's not the thing. This is a guy who is sending a young generation of Russian conscript soldiers, for the most part. Some of them are co- contract soldiers, but most of them are conscripts. Um, sending a generation of Russian soldiers into a country to kill people that he is saying are the, you know, religious and ethnic and linguistic brothers of, of us, the Russians, but to kill them because you're not happy with the fact that they were made independent by Lenin or whatever the stupid justification you just gave was. And that they have pissed you off and there was the supposed coup because they want to be in Europe and there was a revolution and yada, yada, yada. And, but you're asking your young people to go and die facing another well-trained military that has had eight years to prepare for this conflict. So basically you're taking your people and sending them into a meat grinder. Not that the Russian capabilities aren't higher in terms of air power and uh, long-range artillery and electronic warfare in some aspects. Um, I would never diminish what the Ukrainians can do because they're incredibly innovative uh, and in some places have made themselves peers uh, to Russian power and obviously not in things like uh, missile systems. But um, but the idea that you're going to take this highly trained, highly mobilized society where like 500,000 Ukrainians have been trained in the context of this endless eight-year war that they've been fighting while we don't pay attention um, and shove your little Russian army guys in there, knowing that a lot of them are going to die in nasty kinds of warfare. And if you read back to the hottest periods of the fighting in 2014, 2015, um, uh, when Russia was aggressively taking territory in the eastern provinces, which now claims are independent, um, these were not like far away, or, you know, uh, armored vehicle wars. This was hand-to-hand combat. Bodies were left burned. You know, there was horrific explosions in all of these industrial areas. Uh, The fighting was uh, worse than we can imagine from movies that we watch about things. Um, And that's what's going to happen again if they are doing. And it doesn't stop in Ukraine. 
No. It doesn't stop in Ukraine. Unless everybody decides not to fight and have, just have Putin, let Putin have what he wants, which people are arguing right now, which is why I'm so mad. This whole like, no, no, it's just because Ukraine wanted to people be in America. Uh, everywhere, right? Like saying the same rational, like we just can't fight the Russian, like fighting Russia would be World War III. In fact, no, that is not true. And the best example we have of that, is, I mean, because Putin loves the smoke and mirrors and he wants us to believe in it so much. Am I, am I saying we should try to start a, a land war with Russia? No, I am absolutely not saying that. But if you look at the example of Syria, where it's been such a nonlinear war shit show, uh, where we've had guys, they've had guys, they've had mercenaries, there's like all these weird terrorist forces, there's Kurds, there's Turks, like it is a mess there. But we have come up against Russians in direct combat, uh, Russian forces and, and mercenary forces in combat there innumerable times. We always kick their butts. And most of the time, they just run away because they have no interest in getting anywhere near U.S. Special Forces ever for any reason. And Their so why isn't as strong as our why. Ex- the why is really not as strong. And they know if they die in Syria, their body's going to get like dumped in the sea somewhere on the way home and their family won't even know what happened to them. So uh, I think this idea that we can't possibly fight them is absurd. And that if we come up against, if we, if we try to stand against them, that immediately means a war. We're thinking of it exactly the wrong way, which is if we were standing with Ukraine, Russia would have a really big incentive to not do the things that they are doing right now because they do not want to get in a war with us. They're fine killing these supposed brothers for the sake of the Vladimir Putin show but they do not want to fight us. They do not want to fight NATO. And why can't we actually understand that? And this idea that we have all this power, we, the United States of America, the richest, most powerful country in the world in terms of military and economic might, uh, have nothing in the drawer to stop an invasion we saw coming for three months, according to our genius intelligence that they've been you know, throwing out there for everyone to look at for months now. We had three months and we decided to do nothing. That's what we have. I mean, don't you think it's just, do, do, do you think it just comes from PTSD from the Cold War? Like if we, if we stand up to them, they're going to nuke people. I like, think it's much more, it from? it's much more recent. Well, I mean, the nuclear thing Russia really leans on. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's the reason we still count them as a great power after all these years when they were not one. Yeah. Um, you know, they leverage their hard power and nuclear arsenal assets uh, to keep the seat at the table. So they have always done this tactic, right? But um there is the fear of nuclear war peace, uh, especially the way the Russians talk about nuclear weapons. But, um, you know, there's also then the, a lot of this is, is their smoke and mirrors. They're not, yeah. they, they're not looking for an opportunity uh, to nuke us. Um, I just think we, we build ourselves these traps that we stay inside while we see yeah. an aggressive, creative, adaptive, vision of Russian use of power that is based on force and all of these other domains of warfare that we have talked about on your show many times, um, that we just don't, we're not, uh, in some of those, we're starting to take a a more forward-leaning or offensive posture, but for the most part, we still view ourselves as a non-aggressor in the world, which is great, but that's not how you're going to beat this country that is freaking killing, and it's going to kill more people. And a lot of Ukrainians are going to die because we decided this was a fight we couldn't bring any resources to. When again, Russia is fighting this war because of us and not just about Ukraine. 
Okay, so let's see if we can get specific. So there's ben, things that we can do because how? What? Yeah. What? What is it? What are the specific? If you're advising President Biden right now, it's you and him in the Situation Room. Like that's it. You have full audience. Like, what do you? What do you tell him to do? What? What is the thing you want to see done? Any of the sanctions that you've conceptualized, and there are much worse ones than the worst than the ones that get discussed now in the there's there's people whose only job is to sit and think about different ways uh, terrible to, sanctions, right. to take stuff away from people. Um, so all the sanctions, anything you've conceptualized out of the drawer now, because again, what's worse than invading a country of 40 million people that did absolutely nothing to you and for no reason, like just, yeah. and you know it, like there's no pretext at all. Yeah. Like, right, right, right. What is worse than so, this? There is nothing worse than this. So, so pull them all out of the drawer. Do, Number two. Fire now. Do them right. all now. Yeah. Number two, you know where the inequalities are uh, in terms of what Ukraine has. In some cases, there has been a lot of, you know, javelins, stingers. These are, are you know, sort of various kinds of, of anti-armor, anti-aircraft uh, missiles. Um, uh, and the drones that the, the Ukrainians bought from the Turks, which have been really effective in, in different pieces of this fight. They're super effective. They like are really interesting. Um, but so there's stuff they have, but we know where the gaps are. And one of those is in air defense uh, and just air power. Like the Ukrainian air force, which is no longer existent, uh, was not going to stand up to the Russian one when they really have, I mean, their whole thing is about air power for more than anything else. So, um, we know that. So we need to enforce a no-fly zone the same way we have done in other places. And yeah, that's painful. And it's hard to enforce, especially in a country like Ukraine that's surrounded on three sides by Russian shit at this point. What would um, that look like? Like declaring a no-fly zone where and enforced by whom? Over Ukrainian airspace so that Russia cannot yeah. use air assets against the Ukrainian people in whatever enforced is happening by NATO. right now. Enforced by NATO. Uh, enforced by stuff in the Black Sea, stuff in the region that we have. And we have a ton. We have a lot of stuff lined up there uh, on that border because Russia's. We, we fear Russia will shoot things we've been watching. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you, you, you know, you ship, okay. you use uh, the land-based stuff, you use mobile stuff to set up uh, at least a semi-effective no-fly zone over some parts of things. Um, but you at least threaten to use it because that changes, again, the calculus of how they are deploying and use it. Like, are you going to use the guy for the stupid? No, you're probably not going to use the guy for the stupid thing. You're going to save it for the important yeah. thing. So you yeah. diminish the return okay. on value there. So okay. no fly that zone, at least consider it, at least talk about it. Nobody's even talking about it. Why are we not even yeah. talking about it? Um, right. uh, that's an important one. Any of the weapons uh, or capabilities gaps that we can fill, do that now. Fix the, uh, fix the asymmetries between the Ukrainian armed forces yes. and the Russians. Okay, Absolutely. And, and again, at this point, a lot of that is it's too late. The air thing matters more than the rest of it. Um, but this will not be, uh, the conventional phase of this war will not be lengthy if we do not show up to level the playing field. Um, it, it will, there will be a long, persistent, asymmetric, unconventional war of resistance uh, where Ukraine will chew through the Russians over time. But um, that is a different thing. So that uh, we have uh, an entire special forces group, which was created way back in the 60s to prepare for uh, behind the lines partisan warfare against Russians in these places. That's why it exists. It's what they've been training for for 60 years. Um, we have tons of guys out there who have worked with their counterpart forces in the region for a long time. Like, why did you pull them out of there? This is what they freaking do is is support partisan warfare when it is happening. I think we have a lot of special forces capacity to bring to this uh, in creative ways where, again, it's not us shooting Russians in the face. Uh, it is supporting local capabilities um, in smart ways. 
I think if you look at that capability, then in the way that we have trained it across the region to have these partnerships, the fabric between them for potential need of resistance in NATO countries. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of interoperability between special operations and special forces in the region um, uh, for this purpose of being able to support uh, nasty, irregular wars if they come. Uh, we can bring that to how we support Ukraine. And again, having people in there would have mattered. And there's still ways to support it um, uh, where I think there's a lot to do, a lot more to be done. And the Russians will see it in a way that they do not like if they see some of this activity happening. Um, I think uh, even the most basic things of why the hell did we pull our National Guard trainers out of there uh, you could at least just move them back to Poland and make sure that the Ukrainians understand they're there for support, aid, relief of these millions of refugees that are coming across the border. Um, visibly have American presence. Make the Russians understand if they fuck up, we're right there. Uh, and not sitting back in Poland as far from the border as we possibly yeah. can be in some cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. So have forward deployed assets and ask whatever NATO partners want to be a part of that to do it. I understand Ukraine is not a NATO country, but the whole thing you always hear in the Baltics and all these other places where you're talking but, about- But they all get the joke. They, it, it doesn't matter if that, I mean, it, I get that it matters, but it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like everybody has bilateral commitments as well, in addition to the allied commitments, right? So this is always the thing that you hedge the bets with the NATO, because NATO is slow in decision-making, in deployment, and movement. But- the way you fill those gaps is with the bilateral U.S.-Estonia relationship. Like, we will send things faster, don't worry. And we can do that same thing here. Um, uh, we can talk to the Turks. We can ask them to shut down uh, the transit for Russian ships in and out of the Black Sea, which they control. Uh, that is an alliance issue. It's important. Uh, it requires us pulling our head out of our butts a little bit about the Turks right now who are super irritating and not supporting Erdogan and what he does in this country in any way, shape or form. But when it comes to war and alliance values, like we need to have these conversations. Uh, the Turks are important, need them there. They're actually supporting Ukraine a lot. Um, there's all of these different measures that we can be bringing, ensuring that we're trying to level the playing field in the cyber domain, which I think we are doing. It's obviously not public facing. Um, Working yeah, we on, should we should note there probably are a lot of things that are happening covertly are behind totally the scenes covert, right now absolutely. that we are not privy to. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot. It's a, a lot of guys not sleeping a lot right now, yeah. and I yeah. applaud every one of them for the work that they're doing. Um, so I think, but making sure all of those things are in place, like everything that can be done needs to be done, uh, and then we need to think about what is the offensive capability we are willing to put against Russia, physically in Ukraine and creatively inside Russian territory, uh, what are we willing to do to make this war stop? I know we have plans for that. That's a big question. But like, yeah. what do we have in the drawer? We have lots of stuff in the drawer. Do the things. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, it's, it's about saving lives. It's about creating writing this imbalance that we have allowed Russia to create between our security and their security and the primacy of their security over the rest of ours for some unknown reason. Um, it's about writing this balance. And I think we can do that. It's about and I think, the entire liberal order, the, the global liberal order. Frankly, if we fail right? in Ukraine, it fails. Yeah, and it will be, right. I mean, it'll be yeah. in different ways. It could be slow. It could be yeah. piece by piece. 
And we haven't even gotten into, and we won't have time to do now, but we like, Sorry. We, we, we do need Very to go into the, no, 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 not at all. Molly, I'm, I'm grateful. And our listeners are grateful for your, your time. <laughs> at this point, they're like, brilliant. is this lady still talking? No, I mean, the, I gotta get one thing, one, one, one thing that we haven't gotten to is sort of what are like, we, like you and I, like the, our, our politicology fam, right? Talk about this as if it's the first domino to fall in a long chain of dominoes if this doesn't go well. And we should probably describe what that means exactly. What do the dominoes look like when once they start falling? Because it's easy to, if you're fixated on the TikTok of what's happening right now in Ukraine, it's easy to just see this as a one-off crisis in Ukraine. But what if you zoom out and not just like globally at a macro scale right now, but also zoom out with the context of history, you rec- you recognize that that everything begins to fall if this if this uh falls. Like it Yes. It gets very bad. It gets and, very bad pretty and fast. We've gotten really good at the sequencing, which is making us yeah. there will be a horrific thing and then he steps back from it and we normalize it. And then there's like slow steps and then there'll be another horrific thing. And that will happen, but now it will be in our territory. It will be the Baltics were, you know, they're the new NATO states. They're not the real NATO states. Like maybe not all of Poland should count. You know, it's just like there will be these piecemeal measures that you see being argued by the wise realists right now. Uh, and I'm sorry, but that's not how it works. Politicology, you got more than you bargained for today. Sorry, <laughs> no, Sorry. I, I, I mean, I was, I'm I was hoping to catch 15, 15 minutes of your time, and, uh, and we you got to a, a lot of stuff, and we're gonna try and turn this around really quickly. So I don't know what the production value will be, but it's Fine. more important to get you this context and information. And, I never sound as pretty um, as they make me, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Molly and Lene Erickson, thank you for suggesting that we should do this on Twitter. This uh, this one's this one's um, to you. So, Molly, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, and get some sleep. I hope. Maybe today. Maybe tomorrow. Okay. All right. Be well, my friend. Thanks, man.